This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Well, it's been a real pleasure and a joy to be with you these last uh, five weeks. And today we've reached the end of our series on the Reformation alone. Um, a great theme really to end with, the glory of God alone, to God alone be the glory. Um, so I do hope that you've been blessed through this series. I know many people have talked to me and had comments about how God has spoken, which is wonderful. And if you do have any further questions or comments, um, please be feel, feel free to ask them. Um, we're now uh, in John chapter 17. Uh, so if you would like to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, that would be super. But before I start, um, let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Gracious Father, we have already glorified you in our songs and in our prayers. But now we want to glorify you in the preaching of your word. May you be glorified now through the preaching of your most holy word. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. We human beings have a real desire for glory. That is for fame or reputation or indeed that people should think well of us. Uh, that it seems to be a very normal and natural thing that people should feel, should, should think well of us. And I know that, uh, that many of us, uh, have this desire, and indeed in the society we live in, that there is this desire to be successful, to be wealthy, to be well educated. And that is a normal desire that we have to be glorified. And yet the Bible tells us that glory belongs to God alone. And so this morning we're going to be looking at this theme of glory, the glory of God alone. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17 and we're going to be having a look at this theme of glory. Indeed, there are many places in the Bible where we could have gone to have a look at this theme of glory. Uh, but this focus on the, on the Gospel of John, I think, is very, very appropriate. John uses the words for glory more than any other author in the Bible. And indeed, the whole of John's Gospel can be seen to be a Gospel of glory. Traditionally, John's Gospel has been divided into two. The book of signs, that is the book of miracles, and the latter half of the book, which is the book of glory. But even from the beginning, even from the first chapter, we know that glory is what John wants to teach us. Indeed, the first miracle that uh, Jesus done at Cana and Galilee in chapter 2 about turning the water into wine, John says, and so he revealed his glory. And that's an amazing thing, 
that God in our Lord Jesus Christ reveals his glory to men and to women. But here in John chapter 17, we reach the heart and the focus of this theme of glory. Let me put it in some sort of context. Jesus here is praying to God, his Father, on the last night of his life. He has just prepared the disciples that he is going to leave by the cross. And now he turns in this amazing and wonderful prayer, which has traditionally been called the high priestly prayer, but it's perhaps better called the prayer of glory. And he prays to God. And this is perhaps the the most wonderful prayer we have in the Bible. Because we see a small glimpse of what is going on in the very nature of God. Jesus has been talking, as I said, about the cross. And then if you look at verse 17, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, he looks up to heaven and he prays. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, in John's Gospel, the hour is the hour of the cross. The hour, if you like, you would have thought the, at the time of shame and humiliation, of the absolute opposite of glory. And yet, Jesus focuses on the shame and the humiliation of the cross. The hour has come, he says. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That is, Jesus is saying that it is actually at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find glory. Let's just think about that for a moment. That the place of death, the place of humiliation, the place of shame is actually the place of glory. And that is something that uh, John's first readers would have found utterly astonishing. After all, the cross was meant to be a place of degradation. It's a place of torture. It's a place of humiliation. The victim was humiliated and scorned and, and whipped and then left in public to die in agony upon the cross. And Jesus says, that is the place of glory. The place of glory. You see, glory in the Bible comes from the word for heaviness or weight. Something that is serious or weighty. And it has the meaning of the visible splendor of something. So, a king has glory if his palace is full of treasures and gold, and silver, and diamonds. And so the glory of God is his visible splendor. And yet, Jesus maintains that the visible splendor of God is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is at the heart of glory. And notice 
what Jesus says. Glorify your son. Yes, bring me visible splendor, praise and honor. That your son may glorify you. Where? At the hour of the cross. So what we have here is not a narrow, self-centered, seeking after your own praise and honor from God. Like we might do in our society and in our age, where we seek our own glory, our own fame, our own honor. No. What Jesus is saying, that my fame and honor, the visible splendor of God, can only be seen in the cross. And my passion, why I want you, Father, to make me visibly beautiful and splendid and glorious is so that I may glorify you by the work of the cross. Notice what John goes on to say in verse 2. Jesus goes on to say through John, Why glorify? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. There it is. The glory that Jesus has is the glory that the Father has. And it's the glory of the cross. And the cross means, well, eternal life. So, the Father's glory, the Son's glory, and indeed, eternal life all belong together. And then, Jesus goes on in verse 11. He focuses now on the, on the disciples' glory. Have a look at it from verse 6 onwards. He now goes on not to focus so much on himself and, the, and his father, and, but rather on the disciples. And he goes and, and prays in verse 10 for the disciples. That is just the leaven. Just the leaven who are with him in that tiny upper room. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. That is, the glory now belongs to the disciples as well. If you like, the disciples are Jesus' pride and joy. That he is delighted that the glory of God is seen, well, in just these tiny group of men who believe. Just these tiny group of men who believe. All I have, he says, is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. And so, the glory of God is not, according to John's Gospel, something that is merely private to God, but is actually between the Father and the Son. It's mutual glorification, and it's a glory in the cross, and it's a glory that touches that small group of 11 men. 
who in the eyes of Jewish society would have been far less than glorious, wouldn't they? Just a few fishermen who'd walked around with Jesus for three years, but actually, Jesus is pleased with them. They are his praise and joy because they have believed. Now, isn't that astonishing? That actually, whenever a believer believes, that is the glory of God himself. God is well pleased. Indeed, Jesus says in Luke's gospel, isn't it? There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not need to repent. So Jesus now has prayed for his glory, his father's glory, the glory through the humility of the cross, the glory of the leaven. But then in verses 20 to the end of the chapter, Jesus turns to all believers. He now turns to all believers. And uh, let me read verses 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. That is not simply for the leaven, the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And notice this in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Isn't that amazing? What Jesus is saying is that our glory is the same as the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that glory is what? We'll have a look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you loved me. What Jesus is saying is that the church, is that all believers now through the ages, well, we are the glory of God. We show the world the visible beauty and the magnificence of God himself. Isn't that utterly breathtaking? To know that we are indeed given the absolute glory of God. After all, imagine the glory of God, the glory of God in heaven. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit being worshipped by all the angels in, in unutterable extraordinary glory and splendor, heaven itself. That's the glory that God has in heaven, isn't it? Father, Son and Holy Spirit together uh, and the visible greatness of God. He's saying the same is true of us believers here on earth. That the world can see when believers love one another and they are one in unity the visible greatness and the splendor of God himself. And then he goes on in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, 
because you loved me before the creation of the world. You'll remember in the Old Testament that first responsive reading we had is a great example actually of the glory of God. The context in the book of Exodus is that the people of Israel have sinned terribly at the idolatry of the golden calf. God is very angry and is going to withdraw his glory. But Moses intercedes and basically God decides to stay with his people. And then Moses said, God, show me your glory. That is, show me your visible splendor, your greatness, your majesty. I need to see that. And God says, well, I'll reveal myself in words, but actually no one can see me and live. I, you'll get a little glimpse of the glory. It's a, it's as if, it's as if there's a great magnificent procession in the streets of a great royal monarch. And actually, well, we can only see something of the great procession. We're missing it. We can't see it. And that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a revelation of the glory of God. We've seen that over and over again in this series. The Old Testament is central to us as Christians. But God says, you can't see my glory and live. You cannot see me face to face. And then in the Gospel of John, John deliberately takes that refusal, if you like, of God to show Moses the glory in full and says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have seen his glory, the glory of a one and only son full of grace and truth. Just think about that, brothers and sisters, what John is saying. That what God declined to do to Moses so long before, well, the, the Apostle John has seen with his own eyes God face to face, the visible splendor and the greatness of God. How so? Because God became a human being in Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory. And I don't think John, for the rest of his life, was ever able to get away with the moment that he was, well, he was able to see and talk and indeed touch God himself in all his glory in the human body of Jesus Christ. So glory is ultimately human. But now, look at what he says. If that was true just of the leaven, because they were with Jesus 2,000 years ago and were privileged to see the glory of God in the human body of Jesus. What does he now say? Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. That is, all of us, every believer who's ever lived. And to see my glory 
the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So what is the end point of for all of us? To see the glory of God. Not like today we see the glory through the word or indeed in the Lord's table, which we'll be celebrating in a minute, or indeed the glory of the church as well, which Jesus has just talked about as being a visible splendor to the world. No, one day we will see the actual glory of God. We will see God with our own eyes in unapproachable glory in heaven. The glory before the world was created. That extraordinary glory in heaven where God is being praised even at this moment on God's great throne by all the holy angels, by all the saints in heaven, by the praise and the music of tens and thousands of angels. And we will experience that glory And we will have it forever and ever and ever. So that is the glory of God in John chapter 17. And that impact of the words of the Bible here in John's gospel and indeed the rest of the Bible had a real impact on the men and the women of the Reformation. You see, everything we've learned about justification by faith alone, through the authority of the scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, can be summarized in everything to the glory of God alone. And the men and the women of the Reformation were just so taken up with that glory. Indeed, and so we'll move now from that glory to the experience of glory people had at the Reformation. And we'll look at a man called Jonathan Edwards, America's great theologian who was so taken up and entranced by the glory of God. But before we do that, sometime after the Reformation, the um, the German Lutheran musician, Bach, actually was taken up by the glory of God. He was shaped by the ideas of Luther and the Reformation. So shaped that everything he did, every piece of music the great composer wrote, was well to the glory of God. Indeed, on every manuscript he wrote, Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. That was the motto of his entire life, the passion of his entire life, and all his music. And we can, I think, learn a lot about that, even in our enjoyment of music or any of the hobbies that we like, to the glory of God. And this is what he said, the aim and and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. We'll come back to that, how both can work together, the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. But then a century later in the United States of America, there was an extraordinary man 
called Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was indebted indeed to the Reformation. He was God-intoxicated. Even at the age of 17, this man who lived in New England in the United States in the 18th century made resolutions saying that he will live his entire life to the glory of God. That every moment of his life will be focused on God and God alone. And perhaps more than so many other human beings, Jonathan Edwards, by the grace of God, was able to keep his promise. For he used to go and walk into the fields of New England on a, on a glorious morning. And he used to praise and glorify God through everything he saw. So everything for Edwards was imbued and charged with the beauty and the glory of God himself. He could see the glory of God in a flower, in the sunrise, in the birds, in the trees. Even he could see the glory of God in spiders, perhaps not our favorite creatures of all time. But Edwards was so taken with the spider, he actually wrote a little little treat, scientific treatise on the spider. Because he thought it was amazing. It showed the glory of God. Everything was about the glory of God. You see, Edwards was taking very seriously one of the most famous questions of something called the Westminster Confession. I guess here, as Presbyterians, the church is fully behind the Westminster Confessions. And that one of the big questions that the Catechism has, that is the teaching material for all Christians, is this. What is the chief end of man? That is, what's the final goal of every human being? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And notice what this catchphrase actually says. To glorify God, yes, and to enjoy Him forever. The both are linked together. You see, we have a, we, ha, we can get very confused about the glory of God. Because we can think, well, isn't God being self-centered by wanting all the glory for himself and himself alone? Isn't God being good-centered? And when he tells us to be ever so humble and have no glory and no boasting and no pride, but he's getting all the glory. But actually what we've seen in John 17 is that that glory is father to son to spirit and focused on the humiliation and the humility of the cross. So it is not so that the glory of God means that he is high above, sitting in glory. The glory of God is also humility. That's one thing that Edwards noticed. But the second thing is that at the end of Edwards' life, he wrote an amazing book called The End for Which the World Was Created. And he said this, and this is, a this is I think, very interesting and perceptive. He said, 
If you look at any story and look at the end of a story, the end of a story is the key thing in the story, the conclusion of the story. So, for instance, if you go to the cinema and watch a film, what's the most important thing? It actually comes at the end, the final scene where where the plot is all revealed and put back together and we have a happy and satisfactory ending. But he said what is at the end in terms of chronology is usually the most important thing in terms of order. So then he said, well, think about the Bible. What's the last thing in the Bible? What's the last thing of the Bible story? It is quite clearly that Jesus Christ comes back in glory. So what is last in the Bible, the glory, must be the first and most important thing in the Bible as well. So glory is the most important thing, Edward said, in the Bible. And then he went on to explain how glory is actually involves us. Because he said, well, glorifying God is enjoying God. That is, the glory of God is that he seeks the happiness of human beings. To seek God's own glory, for God to seek his own glory is to seek our happiness. And in our happiness, he gets the glory. That is how, says Edwards, it actually works. So never think, Jonathan Edwards would tell us, that the glory of God means that he's self-centered. Rather, it means that we can enjoy and delight in God's glory. That we can raise him up and be caught up in that glory. And then he goes on to say that the glory of God and the joy of a human being are one and the same thing. Because, well, the glory of God is the most beautiful thing in the universe. And that glory is seen ultimately in the Trinity itself. Think, says Edwards, about God the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. We've seen a little bit of that in John's Gospel. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are altogether beautiful and excellent. They're altogether in order, proportion and harmony in a perfect relationship. And it's a self-giving. It's not a selfish thing. The Father wants and delights to glorify the Son. The Son delights to glorify the Father through obedience. And the Spirit is like a light who wants to delight in and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, if you like, a mutual dance of glory. And then, then Edwards goes on to say, again, this is a very modern point. We might say, well, why does God want all the glory? Does he need us to praise and honor him and to worship him? Edwards says, no, 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 God's perfect. He doesn't need us at all. But he wants us. That is, he wants us and invites us to a relationship. 
God is perfectly happy in and of himself, being glorified by his Son and in the Holy Spirit. He has, after all, the glory of heaven and the holy angels to praise him into eternity. He does not need us. But he delights and wants us to be in relationship, in harmony and in love. And then Edwards ends by saying, well, the ultimate end of all things is the glory of God. And that glory is actually, well, quite complex. God is glorious in and of himself. That is, he is a glorious being. He can't help but being majestic and wonderful and glorious. But that glory spills over, if you like, into creation. We've talked a little bit about that. And maybe, you know, when you go outside after the service, you can see the glory of God in the warmth of the, the trees or the singing of the birds. That glory is there in creation. But there is an even more special glory. And that is the glory of redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Where do you see the glory of God at its best? Where do you see the love of God at its best? It's in the redemption of the cross. And now, we being redeemed beings, what do we do? We return that glory back to God in praise and honor. So the glory of God is the supreme value of the universe. You might say, well, that's all very interesting. We've talked about amazing things about the glory of God and prayer in John 17, about the seriousness of Jonathan Edwards and glory. But what about us today? How can I glorify God? How can I enjoy God? How can I be glorified? So let's look at application today, a life of glory. And there are a number of different things, I think, that we can be encouraged and strengthened in our daily Christian walk. And that is prayer in an age of distraction. Prayer and worship in an age of destruction. We today, we modern human beings in the 21st century, get very easily distracted, especially by our mobile phones, don't we? I mean, they seem to distract us at all times and everywhere, isn't it? Or the internet or something like that. We're very easily distracted by modern technology. And in this age of distraction where the mobile is going all the time or the or people are calling us or texting us or whatever, how can we be focused in prayer? I don't know about you, but I find it very difficult to be focused in prayer, isn't it? Sometimes I start off by saying, Heavenly Father, I want to glorify you. And then I think, well, it's a bit hot now, isn't it? Or, you know, sort of, um, maybe I should have another biscuit or something before I get to prayer or something. I guess because you're smiling and giggling, this is not just my unique experience of finding focus in prayer difficult. So how do we focus in prayer? Well, 
it doesn't necessarily mean time. It means actually putting aside every distraction. It means just focusing on the glory of God. If we focus on God and His glory, even for a few minutes, we can be taken up with the beauty and the loveliness of God. The second thing is reverence for the Lord. We live in a very informal sort of age, don't we? We live in a very self-centered age. And yet, if we were in the presence of the Prime Minister or the President today, or indeed, if the Queen of England were to arrive, we would treat these special people with dignity, wouldn't we? With reverence. So why not treat the Master of the Universe with equal reverence? Yes, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Saviour. He is our best friend. But he is the King of Glory. So let us revere the Lord. Now that perhaps is a message perhaps, uh, especially for younger people today. A sense of reverence and awe before the glory of God. And the last thing is, well, glorifying God in an age that is passing away. Again, we're very focused, aren't we, on the, on the here and the now. We want to live for today. We want to have everything now and for today. And yet, the Bible tells us this world, with all its glories, is passing away. It will go. Everything will break and be burnt up. So what does that mean today? It means we're on a pilgrimage. That is, this world is not our home. Like Abraham, we're pilgrims going, journeying from one country to another and where there is nowhere we can call home. Why? Because Abraham was looking for a better country whose builder and architect is God himself. So let us focus on that pilgrimage from this city to the celestial city. And then we also, well, we live in exile, don't we? We're not yet in heaven. And that means it's difficult today. And that means we look towards the future and towards a better place. And lastly, well, there's dual citizenship. Yes, we're, we're here in Singapore. We're citizens of Singapore, or we live and work in Singapore. But we also have a citizenship which Paul says is in heaven itself. So let me now close with some amazing words about the glory of God. The radiant, magnificent and beautiful glory of God from Jonathan Edwards. He says, radiance shines into the creature and is reflected back to the light. The beams of glory come from God, are something of God, and return again to their origin. 
so that the whole is of God, in God, and to God. And God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this affair. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great glory. And we pray that today we might be able to enjoy that glory. And we pray that we might indeed not merely enjoy that glory today, but enjoy that glory into eternity. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.